everyone. It's Nick Walters again with the National Hemp Growers Cooperatives webinar Wednesday. And we are moving once again to having a good audio session recorded as the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest, which is our podcast that you are most likely listening to us on. And yet, once again, we have made sure we kept the bar set high on the guests that we have, of folks who are really involved in the industrial hemp industry. And no less than that would be today with our guest, Corbett Hefner with Formation Ag. So Corbett is coming to us today after a lot of travel and door knocking and doing some other sales work. He's currently in Boise, Idaho, but he's uh, in Southern uh, Colorado is his um, place to leap off from. And so we're glad you made time for us today, Corbett. Thanks. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always good to talk about this and keep educating people and make sure we're all working towards a common goal and, and doing things the right way. There you go. There you go. Well, there's nowhere to go but up as far as education of me is concerned. So that's correct. Uh, uh, that's a that's a, a great easy thing to be able to do. So, Corbett, one of the things I love to ask people about, um, <clears throat> besides giving us some background and let you introduce yourself, and you know, as as uh, Will Rogers used to say, it ain't bragging if it's the truth, right? So you can brag and tell as much truth as you'd like to be able to tell. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself and then t- and kind of how you got Formation Ag and how you got there. Sure. And, and, and talk a little bit about what I would call your hemp aha moment. When would be a thing where you went, ah, this is a thing, man. I, we, we, I need to be. Oh, in this man. Deal. There's been a lot of the aha moments. Um, I started uh, with Power Zone Agriculture back in 2016. Uh, we were in Wisconsin. I came out of flexible packaging. I made fresh produce packaging for potatoes and every type of fresh product that you would purchase in the grocery store shelves. And we wanted to move back home to be closer to my family and my wife's family. So we moved west, um, wagon train and all, I guess, and came into back to our home area and had this opportunity with Power Zone Agriculture um, when hemp was just beginning in 20, late 2015, 2016 is when they formed Power Zone Ag. I came in in mid-2016, and the role was engineering manager at Power Zone Equipment slash Power Zone Agriculture, learning about hemp. And it took about six weeks of, re, of studying hemp, and that was right when CBD really started to take off. Uh, we power zone had already worked on decortication. They had started building the first one late 2015, early 2016 and took that machine to NOCO. But in, in the span of six weeks, I went, Oh, I can't be an engineering manager. We have to capitalize on this, this hemp deal because it was just exploding. So we built the, that first decorticator. We built the harvester in 2016, 2017. We made some more. 2018, we made a lot of CBD harvesters for whole plant because people were trying to combine and chop it. And we're at that point in time, just destroying the trichomes and, and making a mess of their crop and reducing their return per acre. Because, you know, if you're a farmer, that's what matters. How many dollars per acre can you get back? And does it make sense to grow hemp over corn or wheat or potatoes or whatever you're farming? Um, you know, and there's a lot to that. We can do a whole series on that alone. Um, but in 2018, we sold enough harvesters and at that point in time the pump business was really going and we, we couldn't work in the same shop space anymore power zone equipment and power zone ag so we formed formation ag which was still power zone agriculture but we moved 
to the next town over where we found the building and started making a whole lot of harvesters and, and a couple of different varieties. One was a bud stripper to, to leave more of the stock in the field and improve harvesting technique and drying efficiency. Still made a lot of our whole plant harvesters, still made decorticators. The whole time, remember, we've, we've been thinking decortication and fiber and herd was the bigger market here. Uh -huh. um, but we, we made harvesters just because there was a need. And we were the only one of probably two companies that were custom building equipment um, for CBD harvest. And, you know, we did large ag. We've, we've always focused on larger agriculture, mostly because I like big tractors and stuff. Um, and that's just, that's the interest. And that was the need. So we've still been working on, on, uh, um, decorticators. And in 2019, we started formation ag and moved into the new building and have been working on the, on the fiber equipment and herd equipment ever since. Uh, when CBD kind of went south there at the end of 2019, thank goodness we'd been always working on that equipment. And it really started to take off because we had time finally to try to refine that. You know, I had time to study um, what was needed and in, in my background in flexible packaging definitely uh, came into play here because I made non-woven meshes and, and worked for a company that made Rochelle knit uh, fabrics, which you see for windscreen, shade cloth. Uh, golf tournaments, all that that green mesh around the golf course is Shaqua. And this company manufactured that stuff. And I was somewhat familiar with it, know a little bit about it, enough to be dangerous and enough to know how to make yard goods of mesh, whether it's non-woven or knit. So th those backgrounds in history is what's driven us to the technique of this decorticator, which is um, and then not right, wrong, or indifference, but we focus on long line fiber because I want the strongest tensile strength on a fiber that we could possibly get because I know what it takes to go through a knitting machine, through a winding machine, a loom, whatever it is. So I understand the performance of how that fiber, natural or plastic or otherwise, what it needs to, to, to withstand. And that's why we chose this, this long line technique because we want long fibers knowing full well that the more you refine this fiber, the more you clean it, degum it, cottonize it, comb it, cart it, every step of that is going to make that fiber shorter and shorter and shorter as it gets more open and gets more down to an individual fiber. And fiber length and tensile is everything. If sure. you want to make a, a cord, you know, and, and you want it as strong as possible, you can't impact it. Whether it was your first breaking step point, you know, chemically treating it, whatever it is, if you compromise its tensile strength, it just limits its usage downstream. Um, you know, if you want to make a, like the anchor chains, that's why they made it out of hemp because it was so strong, but they never compromise that strength. If, if you, there's techniques you can do now to, to decorticate a fiber, but you're going to change its tensile properties. So that's kind of been the driving force behind our equipment and the design of the initial piece of machinery is the goal of, of what are we going to do with this? I'm trying to make the most flexible piece of machinery um, with the most flexible finished goods because we just don't really know everywhere we're going to take this product yet. We being the industry, is it right. going to be textiles? Is it going to be ropes? Is it going to be uh, non-wovens, um, hydro entangled, needle entangled products, erosion control products? I mean, who knows what the, the state of the industry is going to be in nine months or 12 months from now. You know, we, we've been decorticating actively for over a year and a half in our facility. We took our R&D line 
and just decided we were going to offer it out to have people come in and get large samples to help do product development and launch their businesses. So we've been running large samples for people um, over a year now, actually. Um, and, and heard for hempcrete, we were making inch to inch and a half long um, pieces and sending that out. And then over the last six months, maybe a little more, that length has gone down to half inch to inch. And then we've had a lot of people down, you know, we can size it down to five thirty seconds and I can micronize down into the 20 and 50 micron range. Now, you know, the smaller you go, beware that takes a lot more energy and a lot more costs and a lot more effort to make it smaller because it's really hard to handle. And it just takes a lot of energy to break that product down. Um, but we, we still try to make a very, very flexible platform to deliver a flexible finished good, uh, no matter what it is, um, so that people can do that development work and help drive the industry in the direction that they need. That's what's so fun about this, this, this crop is you can do so many different things with it. I'm baffled. That's what my meetings were yesterday is, you know, I, I know how to take a, a, a spool of material and make it into a yard good of material. I mean, I bought the machines, put them in and hit the start button on them in plastic material, natural fibers. We've got these nice, beautiful, long fibers. Now, now I need to understand in greater detail, what does it take to get from these foot, two foot, three foot long fibers and get them onto a spool? The degumming, the carding, or decottonizing, um, spinning it on into rovings and put it in into threads. I'm trying to learn and identify not only those techniques and the pieces of machinery, but what is the performance that each of those machines need to run efficiently. There's nothing worse than having a, a, a level winder with 400 ends on it, 400 individual threads, than having two or three of them break, and you have to stop all the time and give it time by hand. It's a pain. Uh, knitting machines with three and four thousand ends on them every time you break a strand that's a defect in your qual your product now so the the fiber if you're going to make yard goods really has to perform and that goes upstream what was your finishing processes what was your door to communication processes what was your harvesting and baling process what was your farming practice what was your genetic selection all of those things are tied into the ultimate final um finished good product you want to sell all those things are going to matter so there's there's a lot of things we need to learn here still and so what you're doing we're just no scratching way. the surface no that's cool so i'm don't don't let me interrupt you you're you're got more no, to say than, than i do but <clears throat> so anybody listening full disclosure we've got an ongoing project that you and i are the co-op and we are trying to work through and we're kicking around so let's just without exposing all of that as an idea, the customer can come to you and say, here's what I believe I think I want the end product to look like. And I want it to look something like this. They can come out to your facilities in Colorado, hang out, run it through your R&D version of it. You can twist a knob and put on a tube and do a thing and, you know, yep. make Randy work harder or whatever else it is that you need to do. And then at the end, they can look at that and go, oh, that's great, but I really wish it was like XYZ, not ABC. And then you right. run it again and try it again to be able to let them figure it out. Right. And at, at that point in time, then, then now they have an idea that you're the person to connect to that can get them what their end product is and figuring out then they're buying their decortication or working with others that are going to have one or buy a machine or something like that. But you're not necessarily 
Will, will you also then just continue to do their product for them without them actually having to go purchase one of your sure. of equipment? I mean, you could just say, you know, we'll process to order mm-hmm. and, and they've got to make a decision based off of transportation costs and other things like that, whether that makes good financial sense or not. Is that kind of right? right. Absolutely. That, that's the whole point of that R&D line is, is to have a larger volume sample machine that we can get people, you know, 500 pounds or a truckload. Um, you know, for instance, our, our first milled fiber coming out of the decorticator is 85, 87% clean, meaning the herd is removed from the fiber. And then the fiber tra- tra- uh, goes down the fiber path. And we clean it once and the long line fiber comes out and then, you know, 94, 95% clean. Well, we've been sending samples out to people and they said, you know, can you get 97? Let me try it. So we did a little work and by gosh, we hit 97% clean. So now we understand another technique. Is that adaptable to every single product? Probably not because it's, it's a second pass, although that second pass is going to be integrated in the machine. So it only goes through once and gets cleaned twice. But that's why we build a modular system like that so that we can adapt it to what people need because we just don't see a one-size-fits-all giant machine at the moment. I would, I'm a big fan, and I would prefer redundancy in a manufacturing plant, having been a manufacturer for 30-some-odd years. I'd rather have 10 machines that give me volume, flexibility, you know, a, a reduction in downtime. If, some, you know, if a gearbox breaks and you have one giant machine, uh, you know, if you haven't been paying attention to supply chain issues, a gearbox can cost you 12 weeks if you don't have one right now. Um, I'd rather have 10 machines running than one giant one. Right. And I, can do, I can probably outpace in terms of capacity with 10 smaller machines for less money invested than you can a large machine. And then you've got flexibility for multiple customers. Like I was saying earlier, I don't know if there's a one size fits all or end all be all product for this industry at this point in time. So you may as well set yourself up for downstream success, sellable good success by being able to, to pivot and be flexible. You know, we, we can put in some hammer mill equipment after the product has been separated, decorticated, meaning separating the fiber and the herd. And we can grind down to 50 microns in line in the same facility pretty easily. But the trick there is really, really clean herd. If there's fiber left on it, it does not want to process well because it falls up and makes a rat nest. Um, and those are things you just learn by doing it. You know, right. that, that's why this technique has just been so successful is because it does a heck of a job separating this product. And, and we can put things in and out of it. Things, you know, two weeks from now, we may put something else in. Who knows? Because somebody came to the table and said, hey, I got this kind of an idea. Can you help me out? So, sure. That's very why cool. Not? So, it's kind of like, you know, I had an old um, retired judge tell me one time that one of his first uh, court cases he went in and he got lo- he lost to uh, a, old, a country lawyer after he had all these high end degrees that he had gotten from law school. And the judge in that case put him aside and said, uh, son, sometimes you get educated and sometimes you get schooled. He said, you got schooled mm-hmm. in court. You, you had all the oh, education, yeah. but you didn't. You know, I mean, you got schooled today. So what you're telling me is, is that you you've been educated and schooled on an ongoing basis to be able to say, I've learned more from what not to do maybe in some cases than knowing exactly what to do. Um, yep. Which is Absolutely. makes it fun to be a part of the industry right now, right? To be at a spot oh, yeah. as long as you can keep it going. 
we, we learn every day. You're not going to hear me say we know it all because, by gosh, we don't. We've been well, around. I would be a little said, bit I've been seven years. Of anybody who told me that they did know it all. Yeah, there's <laughs> some out there, but yeah, it, it scares me. Um, you know, we, we've decorticated many, many different genetics. We did some variety trials. You know, we started a processing company, uh, Global Fiber Processing. And we are building a full-blown production line to set in in our facility, and we'll go out and do, you know, joint ventures, collaborations, license agreements. I don't know what it is right now. Depends on the who, what, where, when, and, and what details and locations. Um, you know, people want to put these things in there, and then we build the equipment through Formation Ag as a separate entity. But we started that just to put the rubber to the road because it just wasn't happening fast enough. And we're getting more and more inquiries into, hey, I need a bunch of fiber. I need a bunch of herd. Uh, I can't run it all on my R&D line, so I got to build another one. And when that one's sold out, 70, 80% capacity, we'll build another one. We'll just keep adding them in and, and we can pick these things up and move them. You know, they're, they're modular. They take between 2,500 uh, square feet and 5,000 square feet of space. And, you know, the two or three semis, you can move the thing. Um, hemp is still a little difficult to transit because it's not all that heavy. So I don't think you're going to truck at 500 miles. It might be a hundred miles, might be 50 miles, just depends on what you're doing and right. you know, where you're farming it. Um, we did variety trials in numerous locations around the country uh, with, with uh, I think it was nine genetics and pretty interesting to see what we learned. I mean, the further South you go, for instance, one little tidbit was some of the Canadian varieties that grow beautiful in the Canadian regions you get further South in Texas, by gosh, they didn't do very well. Right. Now, there could be a whole lot of factors in there. So you don't know what the final answer is. You have to do another test to validate that uh, hypothesis. But at the moment, it didn't look like those worked really well. Some of them did. Um, some of the Chinese ones were good. The French were good. The Italian varieties were pretty decent. Those are things we got to learn still. Um, and again, it's all tied back to the final performance of what you want to do. You know, if you're just making rod wovens, that may not matter to you. Uh, tensile strength may not be that big a deal. Um, you want shorter staple flakes fibers. Um, but if you're doing some of these other products where, where you know, a matrix, a twisted pair of, of strands and a strength criteria comes into play, then all those things from genetic selection all the way to the final product are going to start being more and more important. And those are things you just have to learn by doing. No doubt. Yeah, we're, we're in the middle of doing seed trials, getting ready to do some seed trials in the southeast. Uh, getting ready to do it right now just to be able to test all these different things because some of them have been grown you know obviously for cbd but they weren't necessarily grown for fiber so learning is going to be a oh, yeah. to... that's cool well well yep. one of think? the best varieties we've run for for fiber at the moment has been a dual purpose grain slash fiber crop that was grown at 28 pounds per acre seed rate and it makes really decent fiber. It's on, it's on par with some of the Italian and French varieties because we've run a lot of those. We've run Canaf on the machine. Um, you know, it, it, it's a very, very flexible platform. So, so from your, from your, you're seeing it and feeling it because you put the CapEx into doing this additional R and D line and these other things there that you can see that it is all a coming. Looking back, are there any one or two things you could look at that would say, I think that's why it started tipping from CBD to fiber and people really kind of started to get it? Was it just a 
uh, because the CBD market went to the tank. And that is, is part of the reason people thought, well, crud, I better do something else with it. Or had there been other people kind of crying in the wilderness the whole time going, hey, this is what the darn plant was about in the first place. And CBD is just kind yeah. of an extra. I mean, this the real longevity of the plant was really about fiber and grain. So oh, yeah. I kind of late to the party. You know, you look back into the early 1900s and even that Infrafactory video, that was all fiber crop. It was never really intended for the oil products that you do, although they're fantastic. Um, I, th I think some of the issue was um, overproduction in CBD for sure a lack of understanding by the masses that CBD and, and marijuana are not the same thing. Uh, and they're, they're, they're used differently and can be used differently. Um, you know, we were quite early to the party. We had some, some people call us back in early 2016 that really wanted to do fiber, but they couldn't get any traction because people got CBD crazy and, and wouldn't talk to them anymore. And, and it's a shame because they, they were at the right place at the right time. We just needed some more visionaries to say, yeah, uh, we, we need some of this in here. So I'm really glad that, you know, we kept working on, on the 660 machine, which is our, the, the corticator that's making the really nice long line fiber. We worked on the Genesis all the way through 2018 and through 2019. I mean, it's, it's all self-funded. We, we've sunk a lot of money into this to learn what we've learned because we've always seen that, that the long-term play is the grain and fiber and herb market, this thing. That's, that's where you're going to start growing larger acreages that will impact wheat and corn and soybean acres and help those commodity prices stabilize. Sure. Um, you know, and that, that's, that's an interesting thought too. There is, is, you know, we had, I've had several discussions with people that think like hemp herd for animal bedding or hemp creed is going to be market-based pricing. And, and it may well be, but when corn is trading at seven and $8, even, I mean, today, I didn't look today, but it's probably the mid fives to $6 range. Wheat was 318 the other day. Um, you're not going to farm hemp really, really cheap. I mean, the whole, to me, the whole driver behind hemp from a, from a farm perspective is to give these farmers the opportunity to put a value added piece of equipment in their, in their farm, on their farm, in their arsenal to help break this, this, I call it the granary model where you just take it and hope they write you a check and that it pays all the bills. If they've got a chance to do this value added work, like you guys in your co-op where you can control some of that and say, you know, this is what the farm needs to survive and compete. When corn is returning $1,400 an acre, you can't go out to a hemp guy and say, Hey, it costs you seven and a quarter to grow it per acre. And I'm going to give you a whopping 550 bucks an acre back. They're going to tell you, go to jump in the creek. Cause why right. would you do that when you can grow $1,400 corn? Right. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Um, we had an old guy say, you know, I can go broke doing what I know today. Why would I want to do this? Um, <laughs> so you, we got to be cognizant of that, that, that without the farmers participating in planting this crop, you're not going to have raw material supply. If you're not thinking, you know, we're contracting acres for 2022 right now. And we do that. We we've contracted grain acres and fiber acres, and we're doing uh, just for our local facility. We're putting in about 4,000 acres. Uh, we're doing 5,000 acres of grain and some flax too. And are looking at 2023 already. You know, what do we think we're going to need in that time span? Because right. it's important to, to think, you, know, you got to remember, there wasn't a mass planting of fiber last year. So there's only so much of it. We have enough to run all year because uh, we were ahead. And now we're working on next year's crop. 
um, so that we've got enough demand. So if, if people want fiber grown and they want larger volumes of, of animal bedding herd products, you know, we need to be talking to them now. It's, it's getting right. borderline late. Um, again, with the supply chain stuff, if you're importing seed and your seed sits in the shipping container off, offshore for three months, or so what's going to happen? Um, some like our seed trials were probably a month late because it didn't come in in time. And then it sat at customs, things you can't control. Right. Um, so being early to the game right now is really, really important uh, to start thinking about that now. And, and whether that's equipment, your farming process, um, meaning do, do you have a planter? Do you have ground? Do you have organic ground? I mean, what's your, your, your farm agronomy plan? Um, how are you going to harvest it? Because even fiber, you know, it's not that hard to grow. But how do you harvest it correctly? And that depends on what you're going to do with it. You know, do you want long pieces of fiber? Do you want to dual crop this with grain and fiber? You know, we've developed a header. We only got to run half of it because for the fourth time in a row, the crop wasn't tall enough. Um, we've got a header that'll take any combine, mounted on whatever you want. It's autonomous, if you will. Uh, you can put it on yellow ones, green ones, red ones. The grain goes into the tank and there's a head below it. And we do three wind rows to put the crop on the ground so we can red it, flip it, red it, and get it bailed and get it out of there um, in one pass. That makes it a much more viable system. I don't like wow. dedicated harvesters because I think they're expensive. And, you know, why would you use them for two weeks and park them? It just doesn't right. make sense to me at this stage of the game. You get right. long-term and bigger acreage might make perfect sense, but today I like flexible things. No doubt. Well, and, and part of that is just a, the logistics of what it means to, um, be kind of where the industry is right now. I mean, if you just said, I've only got a one note Johnny and that's all I'm doing, then you would be seriously limiting yourself uh, uh, as a company and quite frankly, not very really helping the industry out as much. I mean, to know that, that somebody else still has, there's still a lot of Eureka opportunities in the whole industry for people to go, Oh, well, look, we want to do it this way or do some other thing right there. And if we don't have somebody to grow it, we don't have a way to process it. If we don't have somebody who's going to buy it on the other end of the, you know, end of the day, then you better have a deep and wide checkbook to go play around a little bit until you get all that stuff figured yeah. out. So um, it, it shoot, takes a banker, lot of resources. That's right. My <laughs> banker makes me call him every time I leave the county line. I mean, he, he wants to know where I am. So it's, it's like they it. should track you, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Exactly right. <clears throat> well, Corbett, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking time to be with us today and, and give us some insight into not only with what Formation Ag is doing, but uh, really in on the, you know, you're, you're, you're on the cutting edge, man, of some stuff that's, that, that is going on with the, with the processing world and particularly as it le- relates to industrial hemp usage. And that's one of the reasons that we at the co-op like the industrial side and the fiber side so much because it's an equalizer that can do, you know, you can't grow grain everywhere. You're not going to get every variety to grow in every spot, but wherever it grows, you know, that gives us an opportunity for people to participate. And, and uh, Absolutely. Fiber, I think it's a, is a part of all of that to do that too. So. Well, it's phenomenal. Well, we, you know, in, in our area in Colorado, uh, we live in a high mountain desert. So every acre of whatever crop it is, is under center pivot irrigation. And we're having, as, as you probably have seen, some drought issues in Colorado. There had been a pile of snow for several years. Two years ago, there was a lot, but um we're, long story short, we're running a deficit in water. Well, the hemp crop, and these are all metered wells, so they, they measure it 
quite accurately. Uh, potatoes takes 28 to 36 inches. Alfalfa is up in that range of water, 28 to 36 inches of water, roughly, not always. Um, the hemp consistently 12 to 15 inches of water in our area. Now, we're a high mountain desert. We might hit 90 in the summer. I know like West Texas, you're talking 18, 20, 22 inches of water. Still better than some of the other crops down there, corn, cotton, et cetera. Um, so point being is, is in Colorado and drought-stricken areas, not only is hemp a really interesting crop from the finished good part of it, but it's a water conservation technique to help these farmers not have to pay for water that they're pumping out of aquifers. So that's where in our area, they're very, very interested in it from a water conservation tool. Um, and it also anecdotally helps with the quality of potatoes. They're doing some research that uh, it blocks nematodes. It's helping some of the soil really? health. Um, things like that that are, you know, who knew about that three years ago, four years ago, they just started seeing it went, Oh, that's kind of interesting. Where'd my nematodes go? So now you got to study that. And then, you know, with the 2018 farm bill, now some of these universities and extension offices can help. Right, 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 right. No doubt. It's a cool time to be a part of it. And we're glad that even yep. though we're a little late to the party, we don't think we're so late that we still no. can play. So, um, no, um, there's room for everybody in this deal. There that's, really that's is. Exactly There's so much think. to learn. Exactly what we think. Well, look, uh, next week, folks, uh, um, tune back in. It'll be our last episode for this calendar year. We'll be taking a break for the last two uh, weeks of December before we come back uh, in, in January with a full load again. Um, uh, Lawrence Serban with Hemp Traders is going to be our last uh, our last uh, guest uh, who will tell us about all the different things that are in his satchel of hemp stuff to trade, which is uh, always interesting to hear about the different products and the different um, ways that people are, are, are using the plant, some of which we talked about today. So, Corbett Hefner, thank you so much. Hey, man, have a great holiday. We appreciate yep, you being you with too. us. All right. Thanks you. Yep. Until next time. Do you let them know how to get a hold of us? Oh yes, we'll do that. Here. No, that's thank you for that. Please do that. I will put it, but say it right now so we can end the show. That sure, sure. I'm uh, my name's Corbett Hefner. I'm CEO of Formation Ag now. Um, the easiest is uh, on the web formation-ag.com. Uh, YouTube's formation-ag.com. You can message me, message me on LinkedIn, etc., and email and. You know, if you're selling me car warranties, don't call my cell phone because I've already bought enough of those. Um, but but that's the easiest way is just on the website. You can grab the phone number, hit the sales at Formation Ag link, and it goes right to Randy or myself. And we're usually pretty good about calling people back as, as quick as we possibly can. We, some days we get overloaded, but we do our darndest to call people back immediately. You're getting there. So. Terrific. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, man, stay safe on your travel. sir. Okay, take yep, care. We'll do. Bye. Take care. Bye. This podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.